This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Man, it would be hard to find a more perfect place to talk about winter. Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Well, I find myself in a state of sustained euphoria on this midday in the middle of November, up in the Brooks Range, about 60 miles north of the Arctic Circle, and man, oh man, all around me is every glory you could possibly dream of for winter in the northern part of Alaska. I'm near the little hamlet of Coldfoot. Now, Coldfoot was a busy little gold mining camp back in 1898 when all the gold rush prospectors were coming up into the north. Coldfoot once had a gambling hall, it had a couple of road houses, had seven saloons. So I guess as hard as those miners worked during the daytime, they must have done a lot of partying at night. In fact, the nearby creeks around Coldfoot were named for the working girls that lived there. There's Jenny Creek, Emma Creek, Minnie Creek, and the one I'm walking on right now called Marion Creek. So we'll be thinking about her a little bit, honoring her memory as we walk along a sled dog trail here that's weaving back and forth on the ice of Marion Creek. Weaving back and forth because there are some areas where the water's running fast enough so that there's still some open water. So you gotta be a little bit careful where you go. Now today, Coldfoot, has slowed down, or at least tamed down considerably. It's mainly a truck stop on the North Slope Hall Road. Those guys that are driving the supplies back and forth from Prudhoe Bay to Fairbanks stop in there for a cup of coffee. Now, back in the gold rush days, 1898, when the winter started, a lot of those prospectors got cold feet and headed back south to get someplace warmer before things really shut down here. And that's how Coldfoot got its name. Well, I guess today I can sense a little bit of how they felt because sure enough, it is chilly out here. It's maybe 10 below zero, calm as can be. And all around me, every bough, every twig is covered with snow and rime. The considerable traffic of animals that have gone back and forth across Marion Creek have left their inscriptions in the snow, but they're filled up a little bit with fresh powdery stuff, so sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what kind of animal it was. But right here, very clearly, are the tracks of a fox, probably hunting for the rabbits, I should say snowshoe hares, that have left their tracks all over the place here going back and forth with their beautiful snowshoe feet that are so well adapted to keep them aloft on the very light snow. You know, it's a funny thing, I think, about summer and winter. Everything happens at once. During the summertime, you got the long days, warm temperatures, a great flush of greenery in these forests, abundant life of every kind, easy living for animals and people. And then 
wow, the door of winter slams shut. You've got this protracted, powerful season, very short days, long nights, frigid temperatures, gales and blizzards. The plant life, of course, is mostly gone or it's reduced to these bare, although I'll have to say very beautiful skeletons. I'm standing right next to a birch tree here with this delicate, intricate filigree of twigs up there, all covered with snow. Well, for all the difficulties that winter can pose, it also, of course, is incredibly beautiful, but it really is often a hard life for the animals that remain active can be extremely challenging for people. I'm in the homeland here of Koyukon Indian people who live in villages along the Kayakuk River not far from Coldfoot downstream. In the late fall, sometimes Koyukon people will hear the swans flying overhead, those brilliant white birds against the icy blue sky. You hear their kind of honking calls come down from up there. They're some of the latest birds to migrate south. Koyukon elders sometimes will shout up at those swans. They'll say, I hope you come back again next spring, and I hope we're still here to see you. Well, that tradition poignantly reflects the hardships of especially earlier times. People were never sure that they were going to survive to see the swans come back again in the spring. Well, for people everywhere here in the North Country, winter can evoke pretty strong emotions. For example, I think of the lines by 19th century English poet named Christina Rossetti. She wrote, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Well, there's that perspective, but then winter can also bring on very different feelings. Let's listen to what Henry David Thoreau wrote. You shall walk on water. All these brooks and rivers and ponds shall be your highway. You shall see the whole world covered a foot or more deep with purest white crystals in which you can slump or over which you can glide, and all the trees and stubble glittering in icy armor. Man, it's as if Henry David Thoreau was walking down Marion Creek on this very day when he wrote those words all around me, the world that Thoreau described so beautifully. Well, what the heck causes winter anyway? The Earth's axis, as you probably know, is tilted a little bit. It's about 23 degrees off the vertical. So as the Earth orbits around the Sun, the northern hemisphere angles toward the Sun in summer, and then during the wintertime, it's angled away from the Sun. So up here in the far north, it causes the days to be much shorter in the wintertime, and the sun is very low in the sky. Here we are, almost noontime right now, and the light is almost like evening. Now here at the Arctic Circle, there are huge changes in the length of the days through the cycle of the year. The sun never sets on the summer solstice. That's June 21st, constant daylight, and then... Come the winter solstice, December 21st, the sun never comes above the horizon. This, of course, means there have to be big changes in the lengths of the days from one day to the next at these latitudes. Right now, in the middle of November, Coldfoot and all the other towns strewn around the northern hemisphere near the Arctic Circle, each day is about seven minutes shorter than the one before. Then comes the winter solstice. Big deal for people in the far north. Old-time Alaskans call winter solstice hump day because they were over the hump of winter and the days were now starting to get longer. 
then in late January, every day is going to be about seven minutes longer. Exciting time of year. These places are gaining about 45 minutes of daylight every week. Up in Barrow, for example, the northernmost community in Alaska, about 70 degrees north latitude, the sun stays below the horizon for about seven weeks, from the middle of November until the third week of January. Now, that doesn't mean it's constantly dark, because there's still going to be a glow along the horizon, and that'll be true right until the winter solstice, about three and a half hours of twilight right there at the bottom of winter. And then it'll start getting longer again. Oh, gosh, here's another... This, I think, is the track of an ermine, a small weasel coming along. I can see where all four feet landed in the same place, and then there's a little bit of a trough in between those footprints. From the size and everything in the pattern, you can tell that's a weasel. Now, what about the farthest extremities of the Earth at the North and South Poles? Well, of course, we all know there's about six months of constant daylight in the summertime, and then in the wintertime, six months when the sun never comes above the horizon. Well, how exactly does that work? At the North Pole, the sun will rise exactly one time per year. And that's going to happen on the spring equinox, March 21st. It's going to take about 30 hours from the moment the first glowing sliver of the sun becomes visible until the entire orb of the sun rises clear up above the horizon. Now, during each 24-hour period after that, the sun is going to circle all the way around the sky slightly higher every day until the summer solstice, June 21st. After that, each circuit around the sky is going to be a little bit lower. The sun stays continuously visible for six months up there at the North Pole. Never gets very high in the sky, but it's always there. Now, at the North Pole, on the autumn equinox, September 23rd, the sun will sink below the horizon, and again, that'll take about 30 hours until the sun finally vanishes. After that, there will be twilight until early October, and following that, constant darkness until the new dawn begins to show itself around early March. Now, I should say, that's not complete darkness, because at the North Pole, in the middle of the winter, the moon comes up above the horizon and circles around just like the summer sun for about two weeks of every month. Brilliant, clear polar night sky reflecting on the bright snow-covered ice. It's almost like another kind of a day up there when the moon is up. Now, the same cycle of darkness and daylight, of course, happens at the South Pole, but again, the seasons are exactly reversed. Well, it makes you wonder, how cold is it at the North Pole and the South Pole in the middle of the winter? The North Pole is around the center of the Arctic Ocean. Think about this. The water underneath the North Pole is about 12,000 feet deep. That's 4,000 meters. It's covered by maybe 6 to 10 feet of sea ice, but the relative warmth of that water underneath the ice seeps up through the snow and the ice, and keeps the air above the North Pole from getting extremely cold. It's rarely colder than minus 40 at the North Pole. The South Pole, on the other hand, much, much colder. South Pole is at about 9,000 feet elevation on top of that vast continental ice shelf of Antarctica. The coldest month, which is August at the South Pole, 
has an average temperature of about 76 degrees below zero, minus 60 degrees centigrade. We are talking serious cold here. Now, the Antarctic climate gives us kind of a different perspective on the notorious winter cold of places like northern Canada and Alaska. The coldest winter temperature ever recorded in North America, 81 degrees below zero at Snag. That's a little town in the Yukon Territory right along the Alcan Highway near the Alaska border. Now winter is not only intensely cold here in northern Alaska, northern Canada, it's also very long and unrelenting. For example, at Coldfoot, the average nighttime low temperatures are below freezing over about nine months of the year. Only June, July, and August stay completely and reliably above the freezing point. Oh man, I brush through the alders here that are reaching out into the river. I don't dare go over to my right because it looks to me like the ice might be pretty thin over there. A lot of current running here. In the living world, winter with all its snow and ice and cold and other vigors has triggered enormous creativity as creatures have evolved and adapted to cold, to darkness, snow and ice, scarcity, vulnerability. Reminds me of a line by the writer Pietro Aretino. Let us love winter for it is the spring of genius. Well, let's have a look at some of the ways that animals have used their genius to respond to the challenges of winter. One of them, of course, migration. Winter causes a mass exodus of animals heading for warmer, brighter, seasonally richer environments. Most importantly, incalculable millions of birds. You can stand outside at night sometimes in the fall and listen carefully, and you might hear the voices of birds calling back and forth as they fly overhead. Some birds fly many thousands of miles. For example, robins from Alaska and from the Canadian North fly down to the southern United States. Wheat ears, a beautiful grayish colored songbird from Arctic Alaska down to northern Africa. And Arctic terns from northern Canada, northern Alaska, all the way down to Antarctica. Mammals, on the other hand, tend to migrate shorter distances, if they move at all, because, of course, they have to travel on foot. For example, deer move from the high alpine country down to the warmer sheltered valleys in the wintertime. Caribou, another member of the deer family, probably the most famous of all the migratory animals. Some of them walk farther each year than any other land mammal on Earth. Herds, thousands, countless thousands of caribou every fall walking from the Arctic tundra south into this boreal forest country where we are today. Oh, listen. Let's see if I dare walk over to it, walking very carefully over here toward where the snow dips down. Now listen. Hear that? That's the sound of the rushing waters of Marion Creek going along under the I assume there's ice there. There's a little bit of snow over the top of it. Man, if you tried to walk across that, you're going to end up with wet feet, if not wet all the way to your waist or something like that. I think I'll just get back over here on the safety of this dog team trail. Quite a long stretch here where the uh, rushing water has kept the ice from forming very thick. Something you got to be darn careful about when you're moving around the North Country in the wintertime. Well, perhaps the most interesting animals up here in the north are the ones that 
stay put. They've developed some amazing strategies to survive some of the Earth's most challenging conditions. For example, some northern animals, as we know, will hunker down and they're going to lapse into an almost death-like dormancy. The best known of them, black bears and grizzly bears. They're going to spend six to seven months in their underground dens. The snow and the earth are going to protect them from deep cold, and that den, of course, is going to hold some of their own body heat. As I look around through the forest here, open forest on either side of me, I think, gee whiz, there could be a black bear den anywhere right along the course of Marion Creek. Maybe there's a grizzly bear up there hibernating on the high slopes of that mountain just off to my right. Well, the bear will have no food, no water, will do no eliminating of waste through the whole course of those months in its den. Its metabolism will slow down a bit. The bear is basically sluggish and woozy, but biologists say it's not a true hibernation. When we want to talk about hibernation, let's take a look at the Arctic ground squirrel, pretty little brown critter that lives on these mountain slopes just off here along Marion Creek, all around the far north of Alaska, Canada, Siberia. The Arctic ground squirrel also goes down into an underground den, but it's not nearly so deep and so protective as the one that the bear uses. The earth is going to freeze all around the squirrel. Studies by a biologist named Brian Barnes at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Up on the north slope of Alaska, he found that the air temperature inside a ground squirrel's den can drop to about 5 degrees Fahrenheit, very close to the freezing point. The squirrel's own body temperature then drops very close to freezing. Its heartbeat is scarcely detectable. The squirrel drops into a deep, torpid state. It's like an inert little furry ball. Now here's something that's really amazing. About a dozen times over the course of winter, the body temperature of that Arctic ground squirrel is going to rise spontaneously up to its normal level, about 98 degrees Fahrenheit, for around a day. Now why in the world does this happen? In hibernation, the brain activity of Arctic ground squirrels almost disappears. But then, during those little periods where it warms up, brain activity resumes, comes back to normal. One theory about why this happens is that the squirrels have to warm up in order to sleep that temporarily restores their REM sleep. Yes, indeed, Arctic ground squirrels warm up in order to dream. And the theory is that perhaps this is necessary to keep their brain healthy and allow that animal to revive as a normal creature when spring comes around. Now, there's another animal that's found up here in the boreal forests of Alaska and Canada. It's a little frog, the wood frog. Lives farther north than any other amphibian. Range extends well above the Arctic Circle, right up to the edge of the tundra. In late fall, wood frogs nestle down under the leaves and snow in valleys like this one. They're somewhat insulated down there, but that intense winter cold seeps down, and the frog may actually freeze solid, starting with its eyes and head. No breathing, the heartbeat stops. It's like a little stone effigy of a frog. Now, most animals can't survive freezing. The reason? Because the ice crystals pierce and destroy the cells from within. But as the wood frog freezes, the ice does form inside much of its body, but not inside its cells. It's kept from freezing by glucose and other chemicals inside every cell in its body. This allows the frog to survive literally freezing with no heartbeat 
undamaged. The frog stays frozen like that until spring. Then the frog comes crawling up out from the duff of the forest and hops off to look for a pond where it can start croaking and looking for a mate. Well, of course, some northern animals stay right here at home, but they carry on through the cold weather of winter. Some of them have special metabolic adaptations to cold and to the scarcity of food. For example, our moose, who I'm thinking about right now because I see a fresh set of tracks going right along the alders here, our moose and also deer, their close relative, have a greatly reduced food availability in the winter. Look around here, there's no leaves, there's no fresh greens anywhere. The moose is living on woody browse right now. They put on very heavy layers of fat through the summer and into the fall. This is like stored food that they can use up during the winter to help them survive these conditions. Also, the entire metabolism of animals like moose and deer automatically slows down so their body uses much less energy in the wintertime. This allows them to survive on their limited diet. Then in the spring, their metabolism is going to spontaneously speed up again back to normal. Oh, look at this. Right across the creek here, one, two, three gray jays flying, soaring off over the treetops. Some birds take the opposite approach. They have a very high metabolic rate. This allows them to maintain their body temperature in the wintertime. The key to that is they eat very high energy foods like seeds, like fruit that clings to the bushes through the wintertime, or they prey on insects and small animals. Birds like the little chickadees that stay up here in these forests through the winter, they glean high energy insects from crannies in the branches and bark of the trees here in the boreal forest. Other animals work very hard to stash extra food, not inside their bodies, but outside their bodies. They do this sometimes during the summer months, like our gray jays that we saw a few minutes ago. They'll pick up plant seeds and fruits, roll them around in their beaks. That coats them with very sticky saliva. Then they can go up in the nooks and crannies of trees and glue those bits of food in there. And they have a remarkable ability to remember where every bit of food is cached find it and eat it during the long winter time. Another one is the little mouse-like lemmings. They make caches of small edible roots. Interesting thing about those caches is the Inupiaq Eskimo people have a tradition of finding those little lemming caches and taking some of the edible roots from them to eat themselves. They say it's important though, don't take them all. You gotta leave some there so that lemming can survive through the winter time. Now birds have some other adaptations to frigid and austere winter conditions. Many birds, for example, grow more feathers and fluff them up to create more insulating air spaces around their body. Another way that birds avoid losing heat is by sitting on those bare legs and feet, snuggling them up into their feathers, and also, of course, by tucking their beak in among their feathers. Now, the little chickadees and some other birds also shiver during the intense cold of winter that basically amounts to exercising. They're sitting on their perch, but they're generating heat even during the long winter night by shivering. Birds like the ptarmigan, also the rough grouse that's found in this part of the world, the little snow buntings, they'll dive or burrow down into the snow to get through the cold winter nights. Sometimes they'll stay there just till the next morning. If it's really cold, they might stay down there under the snow for several days, waiting for things to warm up. Now, snow, of course, is an excellent insulator. It traps millions of air pockets, limits the penetration of cold from the air, also holds heat that's coming up from the earth below. 
So even when the air temperature is maybe 50 below zero, the temperature near the earth, down underneath the snow all around us, will be somewhere close to the freezing point, much warmer than the air temperature is. Well, I'll tell you, I can see the light of this day starting to fade already as I'm walking across now a little sandbar, must be a sandbar or a gravel bar underneath the snow. The creek over here to the right looks again like it might have an open hole over there. Let's go and see if we can very carefully walk over here. Oh yeah, listen. And it's got a very thin skin of ice over the top of it. You can hear the water going down underneath there. Beautiful, melodic sound. It's like a little song of winter. Well, perhaps the best known strategy for winter survival, of course, is putting on a heavier coat. Moose and caribou, bears and wolves, beavers, otters, mink, weasels, lemmings, voles, they all put on a thicker coat that helps to trap more air and hold in their heat. Moose and caribou do something else. The hairs on their bodies are all hollow, so they trap air inside the hairs as well as between and underneath them. Well, just as remarkably, many birds and mammals make dramatic color changes from the brown summer fur that blends with the dark earth and the mottled vegetation. They put on a white winter coat that matches this crystal world of snow and frost. Willow ptarmigan, whose tracks we saw, the snowshoe hares traveling along and back and forth across the creek, the arctic fox, the collared lemming, the little weasel or ermine, intense hyperactive ermine, pure white, except in that case for a black tip on the end of its tail. Biologists have actually suggested that that black tip waving back and forth as that little ermine scampers along can confuse predators like hawks that might swoop down to grab the ermine, maybe distracted by that black tip on their tail. I'm looking up at the mountain here, the rocky, sheer walls towering up into the sky. I know that there are doll sheep up there, an animal that's so committed to the winter world that it holds the color of snow all year round. So does the Arctic hare, the mountain goat, the polar bear, the snow bunting, the ivory gull, the snowy owl, the color of snow all the time. And then, of course, there's the raven, the genius contrarian lives in some of the Earth's coldest high Arctic environments, but stays pure, shimmering, indigo black all year round. It seems as if ravens take some kind of a delight in flaunting every rule we might conjure up, or perhaps just making us shake our heads in wonder, that black raven in this white snow world. Well, here I find another set of tracks of a fox going along here. Oops, now weaving off to the side, sniffing here and there. How can the fox and these other animals live without this hugely complex technology that I depend on to keep myself alive here? The fox wakes up in the chilly dawn. It's wearing all of its clothes. It's carrying only the tools it was born with, completely reliant on whatever food it can find over the course of this day. Well, you know, I stand here talking about winter while the real masters of this season are all around me. I just can't see them. They're hidden in the holes and burrows, sheltered underneath the snow. They're hibernating in their dens. They're hunting somewhere here in the forest. Maybe they're perched in the trees, looking down at me right now, soaring up over these high ridges, foraging among the willows and alders. 
marking their time by the snows and the blizzards, by the cold so deep that sometimes it cracks the tree trunks, makes the ice thunder. And then, of course, as I did last night, watching the night sky writhe and flare with the aurora borealis. Winter is their world. Yeah, I guess it's my world, too. How I love the beauties of this snow-covered, chilly winter world and everything that lives here. Well, I guess I better get moving along down the trail. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for your good company on this winter day. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson and produced by Lisa Bush with help from Holly Keene. Special consulting from Ken Fate. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded during the International Polar Years by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Family Foundation, Robert Osborne, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, and Sue Cohn. For more information about the show and how to get copies, visit us online at EncountersNorth.org. 